Hey friend, my name is Lauren and you're listening to A Nightmare on Their Street. This is our first episode, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, I guess you could call this a strange podcast where I plan to sit down with you and talk about all things true crime and the forces in our world that can't really be explained by science. I also wanted to say that if you're Dom's friend, thank you so much for being here. Um, I got some initial support from you guys and it was really so nice to see. Dom seriously has the most supportive and loving friends that I've ever seen before. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for being there for him and for us. We really do appreciate you guys, so thank you so much. With that said, I hope you find today's episode just as interesting as I do. Do you ever, like, walk past your neighbor's house or drive by in the morning or afternoon or whatever and, like, see that dude you see every day walking his dog and wonder, like, what kind of life these people are leading? The location of our first episode is a place where I personally have literally always wondered if the people who are nice active members in the community are who they say they really are. A lot of unsavory things could be happening in your town, but seriously nobody really expects it to be that dude you see walking his dog all the time. I was born and raised in Riverside, California, the location where our first episode takes place. This is a place seriously nobody really expected a serial killer to emerge until women in the county started being murdered. Today, you and I will be covering the case of William Suff, a.k.a. the Riverside Killer. William, or Bill, whatever you prefer to call him, I'm going to be referring to him as Bill. In court documents and things, he is referred to both, referred to as both, but for continuity of the episode, I'm going to be referring to him as Bill unless a direct quote uses William. So, Bill was born on August 20th of 1950 in Torrance, California. At a younger age in the 1960s, his family had settled into like Lake Elsinore, Paris area. And if you're not familiar with the area, uh, Riverside County is a kind of a big area and the Paris area is on the southern end of this county. Um, He was the eldest of five kids and his father did work as an electrician. And he did have some side gigs as a drummer for country western bands. And according to the LA Times, in an interview with Bill's younger brother, um, his name was Kenneth Suff, he's quoted saying, Bill was your typical friendly older brother, and that him and Bill did get into fights, but it's just like you would expect brothers to get into fights like, um, but he never remembers him being violent or anything. Kenneth also notes that none of the siblings, including Bill, were excessively disciplined or abused by their parents. Bill graduated from Paris High School in 1968 at the age of 18. In 1969, he joined the Air Force where he had worked as a paramedic. Um, He did specialize in pediatrics as a medic at the time, but he was discharged from the military in 1970. So just to clarify, he was literally only enlisted for a year. While he was enlisted, he married a woman named Terrell. And according to the documentary show Born to Kill, in an interview with his ex-wife Terrell, she states that she did hesitate in marrying Bill because she was pregnant with a child of a man who had raped her, but Bill said that he wanted to marry her still. In this interview, she also states that like after the baby was born, Bill had 
told her that they literally could not bring the baby back to Texas with him because he told his superiors in the military that the baby died. That's fucked up. (laughs) That baby was then adopted by his mother and stepfather. She explains that their marriage was not really a healthy one. He was controlling, manipulative. He wouldn't even let her go to the grocery store alone. So red flags all around. One night while the couple was at their home, she says that they had gotten a new kitten and as you would expect a baby kitten to do, it was crying and Bill got pissed off and he shot it with a BB gun. Another red flag. So after um, their first child together was born, he wasn't a good father and he was physically abusive to the boy. And unfortunately, they did have a second child and that second child would be met with a fate that's arguably worse than the first. Only about like six-ish short years after graduating high school, Bill and Terrell were arrested for the death of their two-month-old baby girl. Her name was Dijonay. The two were tried after their pleas of not guilty for the charges, and according to a piece published by Justia Law, records showed that prior to that child's death, both of the Suff's children were physically abused. Now, during the trial, evidence showed that Bill was the violent offender in this case, and a testimony given in court stated that he had frequently abused the children, and there was no physical evidence that pointed to Terrell being a person partaking in the injury of the children. I'm not really sure. In all the documents that I read, I don't know how they can differentiate who actually laid their hands on the children, but according to the, according to the courts, Terrell was not a person partaking in the injury of the children. So, according to Terrell, on the day of the incident, she had woken up at some time between like 6.30 a.m. and 7 a.m. She changed Dijonay's diaper, put her back into her crib, and proceeded to get ready for work. Now, soon after 8 a.m., uh, the next-door neighbor, Irene Taylor, had given a ride to Terrell as she normally did. Now, the testimony Bill gave tells his account of that morning. And he says he was alone, he was home alone with the children all morning, but left the children alone at two different brief points in time where he needed to go to the mailbox, then later making a call at a payphone that was located about two blocks away. After he had ran his second errand and made that phone call at the uh, phone booth, Bill explains that he found his daughter lying down between the crib and the wall where she had actually died. A little before noon, he claims that he ran back to that same payphone in order to call his wife explaining that she needs to come home and that something had happened to their baby. According to Terrell, she had hurried home on foot and then she actually broke into Irene Taylor's home to call for help. Irene had been home at the time of Terrell's frenzy and had been woken up to the screams of her needing an ambulance. Dr. Felix, I believe his last name is pronounced Gavusha. Excuse me if I mispronounce it, I probably am. The chief ME at the time performed the autopsy on the little uh, the little girl and he did find like horrific evidence of abuse. She had suffered from previous injuries that included a broken arm and 13 broken ribs. Both of her parents deny any knowledge of previous injuries and because her little ribs and arm had been healing at different points in time, it is evident that these injuries were sustained at a previous time. Now, both Terrell and Bill said that they didn't have any knowledge of these injuries, but 
Bill was a trained paramedic. I just finished EMT school and it is not even as extensive a param- as paramedic school, but we're literally trained on how to identify physical injuries and physical abuse in pediatric and geriatric populations. So for him to be a trained pediatric paramedic, to say he doesn't know what these physical injuries look like is, it, frankly, it's bullshit. <laughs> so yeah. The previous injuries were not the cause of her death, but her cause of death is what is described as a sharp blow to her abdomen with a blunt object. This trauma caused her liver to rupture, which led to massive amounts of internal bleeding within her abdominal cavity. I'm going to refer to him as Dr. Felix just because I have difficulty uh, pronouncing his last name. Um, Dr. Felix explained that the size of the rupture would indicate how much blood is leaving the wound, And because the size of the rupture couldn't be determined, her exact time of death couldn't be pinpointed. It would have been helpful to know if, like, Terrell was home at the time or if it had actually happened when the phone call was made or when he went, what was it, to the mailbox. If there were witnesses and they had actually seen him not placed at the home, that would have been helpful, but the time of death could not be pinpointed. However, he did make a point that the rate of bleeding that would result in death could not have been any less than 30 minutes and no more than 8 hours at which time the autopsy was performed. So, 30 minutes, minimum time 30 minutes and no more than 8 hours. So, to clarify, the time within that window where this incident could have occurred would only have been possible at some time after 6.30 that morning, which for what, 30 an hour, 30 minutes an hour, Tara was home, um, and those few hours after that, it was just Bill at home with their other kid. I also wanted to say, side note, in case you're interested or want to look him up, the new, the new, um, chief ME for Tarrant County, Texas was filled after Dr. Felix passed away, and it was filled by a Dr. Uh, Nazim Pirwani, He is now retiring because he's been under fire for questionable testimonies for death penalty cases, as well as maybe other autopsies that are done um, under him. There's been mistakes made. And I think he's set to retire literally next month, September of 2021 this year. But a lot of people are asking for an investigation into this because they say that his resignation really isn't enough. I mean, I agree, especially working with a death penalty case like... That shit's serious, dude, especially in Texas. Like, they kill anybody. (laughs) So, um, yeah, if you want to look him up, if you're interested in any cases, maybe I'll cover some, but I thought it was interesting. Anyways, so in court, Irene had testified that when she had given a ride to Terrell that morning on September 25th of 1973, Terrell didn't really, like, seem like her normal, bright, and talkative self, and she didn't invite her into the apartment the way she normally did. So Irene, I don't know, would go knock on the door and Terrell would be like, oh, good morning, come in. But that morning she didn't do that. So it's interesting. She also testified that a week prior to this incident, Irene had asked Terrell why the child who is now deceased had a face black with bruises and a hurt arm. And she even asked if she was scared to leave her kids with Bill and that if they had ever gotten injuries while she was in the while they were in the care of Bill um and Terrell replied to her and said that the injuries were never on purpose but usually in a fit of temper 
In addition to these injuries of Dijonet, their other child, their son, had suffered at a different time. He had suffered an injury so bad that he had to be in the ICU for three months. Terrell and Bill claimed that this was a rocking cradle accident. From all of this and all the evidence that was gathered against Bill, it was sufficiently supported and there was really not any supported evidence against Terrell. It was all circumstantial, so they couldn't convict her. But the state's brief said that the evidence and record established that Terrell Suff was, to understate the matter, quote, a poor mother. They were not confident in her criminal liability and the charges against her in this case, and the evidence of pre-existing injuries were not evidence of her guilt. Um, It just pointed to Bill being the only guilty party, but they did say that she's a shitty mom, so... Now, Bill was sentenced to 70 years in prison, and Terrell, as I said, wasn't convicted of anything because of lack of supported evidence. Now, he was sentenced to 70 years in prison, but Bill was granted parole after serving only 10 years. He was released in March of 1984, and then he moved back to Riverside County alone because Terrell divorced him. Now, I wanted to give, like, a little background on Riverside County just because I'm from here. I've been here for almost 30 years. How old am I? For, like, 27 years. So, I just wanted to give a little background on the town or city. It's a big city now. Riverside does have its own university. It's called UCR, UC Riverside. It is your average city where people live so they could raise their families. They... I mean, I still do some of these things. They Castle Park is still here. They take them mini golfing or to ride rides, and we have a drive-in called the Van Buren Drive-ins. And I still go. I go with my boyfriend Dom to the movies frequently. He just for the first time we went to the drive-ins, and he loved it. And I did that when I was a kid. And this was a place where people literally came to raise their families. But I mean, obviously things changed. And I think that things kind of changed after this, everything had happened with Bill Suff. My dad has lived here his entire life. He did tell me about when he was younger, he'd go to the Riverside International Raceway, which was actually partly owned by Bob Hope for a period of time, which is pretty cool. And even the NASCAR Winston Cup was held there, as well as Formula One U.S. Grand Prix in 1960. So I thought it was pretty cool. This was a place where everybody knew each other and everything was what you'd expect in a small town like Riverside in the 80s and 90s. And that was really until the county realized that they had a serial killer on their hands. Bill worked for the Riverside County as a stock clerk. Now, uh, maybe don't hire a child murderer as a government employee. A convicted child murderer at that. Not even an accusation. He was a convicted child murderer. And they gave him a job working hand-in-hand with the police? Uh, I don't understand. Literally right after he was released on parole, too. It doesn't make any sense to me. Databases back in the day sucked. In the city of Lake Elsinore, he met an 18-year-old woman. Her name was Cheryl. Very close to Terrell. She was an 18-year-old woman, and he had met her at a convenience store where she worked. And she would become his wife after only a few months of dating. The two did have a daughter together. Her name was Bridget Ann. She did suffer a similar fate to the child Bill had previously murdered. Not as bad, but any child with Bill's is not a child you want to be. 
According to the LA Times, the infant daughter, who was only three months at the time, was taken to the hospital for an apparent beating that resulted in brain damage, but luckily she did survive. Now, according to the AP News, the hospital contacted authorities and Bridget was taken, where she had then stayed in foster care. But the couple was literally never officially charged with anything. Nothing. I don't understand. Whatever. Anyways. Bill was said to have been friendly and sociable. He did helpful things for his neighbors, like the dude I mentioned earlier that you see walking his dog every day. He did helpful things for his neighbors. He even participated in one of Riverside County's employee chili cook-offs, and he won the prize for best homemade chili. According to the LA Times, he was also a volunteer for Riverside County's carpooling program. He's on one of the brochures, smiling next to his van with his license plate reading B-I-L-S-U-F-1, where the brochure said, take a ride with Bill. Yeah, no thank you. I don't want to take a ride with you, Bill. Appreciate it, but no thanks. I did try to find a picture of this brochure. Couldn't find it anywhere. Now, in this point in the episode, I am going to start going into some people who go missing. So, basically, trigger warning for the rest of the episode, as if the beginning of the episode was great, but it does get a bit more graphic, so um, strap in. On October 30th of 1986, the body of 23-year-old Michelle Yvette Gutierrez was found in Rubido near the industrial area of Agua Mansa Road and Market Street. She would be known as Suff's first adult victim. Her lifeless body on her back was found in a drainage ditch with severe damage to her body. Her clothes were ripped apart. It left tattered pants and a sweater with her underwear pulled down to her ankles where her pubic hairs seemed to have been ripped out of her skin. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, face, and buttocks. There were also strangulation marks around her neck and trauma to her anal and vaginal area. The ligature mark indicated that she was being strangled while being horribly mutilated by Bill. His next victim was possibly Charlotte Jean Palmer, a 24-year-old woman found on December 11th of 1986. She was a transient woman who had arrived in the IE from Illinois. Uh, the IE, if I refer to Riverside County as the IE, I literally just mean the air, the same area, same thing. She was found near Highway 74 and Matthews Road. The coroner's office was actually unable to pinpoint her cause of death because of the level of decomposition in her body. The two murders of Charlotte and Michelle were I calculated about 25 miles apart and literally several cities away from one another and this made it harder for police to connect the two. Even to this day, it's still hard to connect things when there's borders set and there's different police departments. So, um, so that's why it made it harder for police to connect the two. His next probable murder occurred in January of 1987, where 37-year-old Linda Ann Ortega had been found stabbed to death in Lake Elsinore. She was a single mother. She was dedicated to raising her only teenage son. She was a part-time sex worker in addition to her work at Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr. is just a, a delicious fast food restaurant. <laughs> 
Her naked body was located near Franklin Street Ridge Road, where the autopsy showed that she had been dead for about three days and she did have high levels of alcohol and cocaine in her blood. At this time, police had started to piece together connections on the three crimes with the notion that they could have possibly had a serial killer on their hands. The next murdered victim in the area with similar wounds was Martha Bess Young. She was found on May 2nd of 1987 where her body was displayed disturbingly in a spread eagle position. She had been working as a sex worker for some time so she did have a somewhat of a history with run-ins with the law. The coroner determined that she died from an overdose of amphetamines while she was being strangled three weeks before her body had been found. Riverside County had at this point started a task force to start the search for this murderer and to have a task force, you know, one would need furniture, right? Well, this allowed Bill access to the task force center where he was still working as a Riverside County warehouse employee, where he would literally stock the task force with furniture. This task force had been the largest one formed in Riverside County, which was led by Riverside Police Chief Linford L. Richardson, Sheriff's Lieutenant Al Hearn, Captain Bill Reynolds, Lieutenant William H. Caldwell, and Sheriff's Coisbird. And at this point in time, he there was either a cooling-off period or bodies during this two-year period were never found. I don't really think that he had a new place to leave victims. I think he did have a cooling-off period because we'll see that like with his next victims, he doesn't try to hide them and he keeps going back to the same areas kind of to leave the victim's bodies. So the next victim found in the area was Linda May Ruiz. She was a 37-year-old woman and wife and she did make a living as a sex worker just as the previous victims did. On January 17th of 1989, her body was found and her head had been buried in the sand on the beach of Lake Elsinore. Her head being buried had caused her to asphyxiate her death was listed as acute asphyxiation because they had found sand in her throat. On the sands of the beach, there were no signs of struggle and her blood alcohol content was 0.19%. Uh, she was around 122 pounds, so it is possible for that amount of alcohol to have made her very drunk. So maybe that could be why that there were no signs of struggle on the beach or he had murdered her somewhere else and then placed her body there. The next victim was the first of many that would later be used in part of Bill Suff's conviction, and her name was Kimberly Lytle. Kimberly was 28 years old, and she worked on Main Street in Lake Elsinore. She was a mother to a daughter. We'll call her daughter S. The last anybody had heard from Kimberly was on June 26th of 1989, one day before her birthday. Now, S had been staying with her father, but Kimberly wanted to take her daughter out for a birthday celebration dinner, and unfortunately, Kimberly never showed up. Her body was found on June 28th of 1989 by two workers on their lunch break in Cottonwood Canyon on a road called, ironically, Lost Road, which is located about five miles south of the city Canyon Lake. When her body was found, according to a close friend of Kimberly, the clothes she was wearing didn't appear to belong to her. These clothes included a western shirt and black socks. During her autopsy, it was found that her cause of death was asphyxiation due to strangulation, 
And on the marks that were left on her neck where she was being strangled, there were scratch marks that were left behind by herself and also her attacker. The marks left behind included bruising and the victim suffered from a fractured hyoid bone as well as hemorrhaging from her scalp which indicated blunt force trauma. A towel was also left draped over the body of Kimberly is presumably left by Bill. After Kimberly had died, her father took Essen and he raised her himself. She was 16 years old at the time. Judy Lynn Angel would be the next victim of Bill Suff, where she was found on November 11th of 1989. She was 36 years old and a mother to two children, and she also made a living as a sex worker to make sure that she could support her children. Her body was found near Temescal Canyon, where she had deep defensive wounds on her hands. These defensive wounds indicated that she was actually trying to fight off her attacker. Unfortunately, she did not make it as she had suffered from blunt force trauma to her face, which actually led to her skull being crushed. Trigger warnings are, um, they're listed in the show notes, but personally, for me, this is the worst and most horrific um, murder of all of his. Not that they're not all horrible, but this one is really, really bad. Um, so if you don't want to hear it, I would suggest skipping ahead about 40 seconds. Um, so here we go. The next victim, who would be the second victim used against Bill during his trial, was 23-year-old Tina Leal. She was a mother of four children. Tina's brother, his name was Jose, he later makes a statement to say that the last time he saw his sister was in July of 1989, and he told, and she told him that she was now clean, and he said that she even looked good, like she didn't look like she was using at the time, nothing like that. And she had hugged Jose and his wife for the very last time. Her body was found on December 13th of 1989 in Lake Elsinore on a road that was usually light in traffic, and she was also wearing a shirt that did not belong to her. Her cause of death was asphyxiation caused by ligature strangulation. Because of the ligature strangulation, Tina had hemorrhaging within her neck and eyes, as well as abrasions on her neck that were from the actual ligature. She was stabbed in the chest four times, anti-mortem. Anti-mortem just means while she was still alive. Two of those stab wounds were three to four inches deep and into her heart. Her left breast had deep incisions that were made while she was still alive. She suffered from lacerations to her vagina and a stab wound to her pubic region. She also had ligature marks around her ankles, which indicated that she was bound at the ankles. And... And a general electric miser 95-watt light bulb was found within her uterus. This would only be possible by placing the light bulb through her vagina, past the cervix, which separates the vagina and the uterus, and then into her uterus. The light bulb was found intact. Now, unless there was one of those wounds had physically opened her uterus, that would be the only other way that that light bulb could have been placed there. I don't understand how the light bulb was found intact. Makes no sense to me. Um, yeah. I, this, this really showed how horrible he was. I don't really have any words to describe what he did to this poor woman and the other women. 
He purposely mutilated her in areas that were seen or that are seen by society as solely sexual parts of a woman's body. And he attacked them like he had like some sort of vengeance against her. I don't know. That's what it seems like to me. After Tina's death, her children had moved to Mexico um, to live with Tina's husband's parents. The next victim that Bill would later be convicted of was 23-year-old Darla Ferguson. Uh, Darla was a mother to an 11-year-old girl, we'll call her Jay, and at the time Jay was being raised by her paternal grandmother, uh, Mary Butcher. On January 18th of 1990, Darla's nude body would be found in Lake Elsinore, just east of the 15 freeway. She was found by a car that was passing by early that morning near Cottonwood Canyon. Her cause of death, too, was asphyxiation due to strangulation, which did cause hemorrhaging in her lips and eyes, as well as bruising and abrasions on her neck and blunt force trauma to the head. Her body was wrapped in a garbage bag tied at her waist with a white hemp rope. Darla's mother could not afford a proper funeral for Darla, and she remained in denial about her daughter's death for a long time. And after the death of Darla, her daughter Jay refused counseling within the five years following her death, and according to Mary, Jay was filled with sadness, fear, and anger after finding out what had happened to her mother. The next confirmed victim was Carol Miller. Carol Miller had a sister. Her name was Kathy. Kathy was murdered when Carol was only 16 years old. At the time of Carol's murder, she had a son who was 24 years old, but had been previously living with Carol's other sister since the boy was about five years old. Less than a month after the previous murder on University Avenue in the city of Riverside, Carol Miller would be seen entering a car on February 6th of 1990. And at this point, we finally have a witness. According to the witness, the car was blue with a white male driver. This was the last time Carol Miller, age 35, would be seen alive. Her case would also be used against Bill in his sentencing. Two days later, on February 8, 1990, Carol's body was found in a grapefruit grove near High Grove area in Riverside County. It's an area that's closest to Pigeon Pass Road, which is located about four miles north of where she was last seen alive. Her cause of death was five anti-mortem stab wounds to her chest. Three of those five stab wounds were um, actually penetrated her heart. Her face was partially covered by a shirt and had been so severely damaged from either a smothering action or repeated impacts to her face that her upper lip had actually torn from the gum. She was also found with ligature marks around her wrist, so what indicated her being bound. Also, I did some research about what covering victims means, um, at least their face, because I was I always find it interesting, you know, it kind of seems like some sort of guilt, but I did some research on it, and from what I found, there's a step in a homicide crime scene, and this research calls it undoing or symbolic reversal, where they did a non-random national sample of 975 homicides, and only 1.13 exhibited the undoing behavior, which included the covering of of victims with the blanket or clothing. Now the 1.13% doesn't seem like a lot, but it's not all homicides are murder and not all manslaughter is murder. So maybe, I don't know, maybe if 
data was collected that was more confined to a group of people who are convicted of murder rather than like the blanket term homicide maybe there would be a higher percentage of people or maybe lower i don't know it would just be interesting to see but if you do happen to know of any research where they do talk about this i would be happy to read it so you can send it by email that would be great Carol's son was left without his mother, who had been who had become a father just before the trials later began. His three-year-old son was present at the trial. Carol never got to meet her grandbaby. Cheryl Coker, another woman whose case will be used to put Bill away, was a 33-year-old woman and wife, was last seen alive by her husband Boyd on October 30th of 1990 while she walked on University Avenue in Riverside where she worked as a sex worker. The two of them were chronic drug users and Cheryl's work had actually paid for the drugs they used. The married couple had been staying at the Western Motel on University Avenue, uh, the avenue in which Cheryl had been working for about three years at this point. According to Boyd, Cheryl had told him to use the $60 they had to buy more cocaine and that she would go work and be back so they could buy more. He said that she typically would service about four to five men per night in their motel room while Boyd had vacated the room for her to use. Boyd had returned to the room, but Cheryl actually never returned. He said that this was really not normal for her to work the entire night and not make him at least aware of the situation. One of Cheryl's fellow sex workers made a vice detective aware about her disappearance, as Boyd didn't feel comfortable doing so considering the illegal activity that they had been participating in, and he did have a criminal history, so he didn't feel comfortable in contacting a detective on her um, disappearance. On November 6th of 1990, a man named Randolph Clanch noticed peculiar placements of pallets near a dumpster where he had been working. He needed a loose piece of wood, so he looked inside the dumpster where he saw a foot. As it was just Halloween, what, like six days earlier, Randolph assumed that it was some sort of Halloween decor or like a dummy, but when he had touched the foot, he realized it was a human foot. She was found nude, partially inside the dumpster, located on Palmerita Avenue, just about six miles from the previous victim's location. This location was an industrial area, it's, it still is an industrial area, and the industrial areas in Riverside tend to be a little bit more desolate, and it's usually like 18-wheelers who travel through the area, maybe like mornings and afternoons when um, the employees are going to the warehouses, maybe that there's more traffic going through there, but generally they tend to be a little bit more desolate. Her cause of death was ligature strangulation, with a ligature so tight that it cut through her skin. But because of the rate of decomposition, the medical examiner could not identify hemorrhaging, but she did have bruising on her forearms and the back of her legs, as well as fingernail marks consistent with the previous victims around her neck. Now they did find that her right breast was completely removed post-mortem. Post-mortem means after she died and her breast was placed about 30 feet away from the dumpster. Now, remember how he previously mentioned that Bill participated in that chili cook-off and he won? Well, there's speculation that a breast from one of his victims was actually used in his chili winning recipes. That chili was actually served to law enforcement. There is, if you want to Google it, you're gonna find some pretty gruesome stuff if you Google 
Google him, but there's a picture of him holding his pot of chili that says that he won. And who knows what the hell was in that. Bill's sixth confirmed victim was Susan Sternfeld. Uh, She was a 27-year-old woman, mother, sister, and she worked as a model also, part-time. She had two sons. We'll call her two sons M and T. And to her loved ones, she made them aware that she was trying her best to get clean from heroin for her son's sake. But unfortunately, because of long wait lists for the no-cost drug addiction programs in the area, she did have difficulty getting clean. She was found on December 21st of 1990 by a janitor in a dumpster enclosure on Iowa Street in Riverside, where her cause of death was strangulation, but she suffered no apparent mutilation like the previous victims actually suffered. After her death, Susan's two sons were put in the custody of their grandmother, and Susan's death had caused her brother to become completely withdrawn and hopeless, basically. The seventh victim was Kathleen Milne, also known as Kathleen Puckett. I'm gonna re- if I mention her last name again, I'm going to refer to it as Puckett because in court documents, most of them say Kathleen Puckett. She was a 42-year-old woman, mother to one son, two daughters, and she had a sister. Kathleen's sister, Sylvia, had tried to get her clean after she had started using heroin when she was like 19 or 20 years old. Her clean streaks, according to her sister, were not always permanent, but her family states that they had been gaining traction in helping her find a path to a clean life. She died on January 18th of 1991 and was found within 24 hours on January 19th, 1991. She was found by a motorist in Lake Elsinore and very far from where she had worked in University Avenue. Nowadays, taking the freeway from downtown Riverside to Lake Elsinore, it's going to take you like 30 minutes without traffic, so it is pretty far from where she had been working. Her cause of death was asphyxiation due to strangulation and obstruction of her airway because a white sock had been placed inside of her mouth. The next victim, Sherry Michelle Pacer, was a 24-year-old woman who attended California School for the Death on Arlington and Riverside, and she was the mother of one and a part-time employee on cleaning personnel, as well as her sex work, the same as the other victims. It's crazy because I was in the car with Dom the other day. Where were we going? Where were we going? Oh, we were going to LA. We were going to LA and we had driven by the school for death and I was telling Dom he doesn't listen to too much true crime unless I'm listening to it Um, and we had driven by the school and I was like I was mentioning to him like one of his victims went to school there and it's crazy to like drive down these streets or be in these areas this is my home and this has been my home for my entire life so it's just it's crazy and even Dom's cousin played soccer against the school of death's team so it's it's crazy to see all of these things so close to home. On April 26th of 1991, Sherry had left her friend Peter's home at around 10 p.m. on foot to go buy some things from Vaughn's, but she never returned. And according to Peter, he didn't know that she was um, working as a sex worker at this time. Near the Concourse Bowling Alley on Arlington, Dylan Bordages, I think is how you say his last name, and two of his friends were outside in the parking lot getting some fresh air around midnight. They were waiting for a friend to come. 
As the three men walked along the back alley waiting for their other friend, they noticed something that looked like a mannequin in a dirt planter. Now, when they looked closer, they saw that this wasn't a mannequin, but the body of a human. They alerted security, and 911 was immediately called. According to the autopsy done by Dr. Uh, Dietrich Lias, Sherry suffered from blunt force trauma to the head, which caused hemorrhaging, and she also had abrasions and bruises that were there before she had died. She had no official cause of death, but the pathologist concluded that her cause of death was not natural. In an interview with Bay City News, Detective Bob Creed stated that the departments were doing their very best work possible to find the killer of these women, and he is quoted saying, We don't care if they're drug addicts or prostitutes. They're getting the same resource level as if they were cheerleaders. On July 2nd of 1991 in Lake Elsinore, victim 8 went missing. Sherry Latham, a 37-year-old woman who worked on Main Street just like Kimberly, the previous victim, according to Sherry's boyfriend Joseph, she was working that night that she had gotten taken and he was a possible witness to the person who had took her. From about half a block away from where Sherry would wait for a customer, her boyfriend would watch where vehicles would pick her up. It was typical for her to go to a field like near the welfare building in the, uh, in the area, but the vehicle that picked Sherry up went the opposite way. She would typically return after like 10 or 15 minutes, but around like 8.30 to 9 p.m., she entered into a black Nissan, a car that Joseph wasn't familiar with. He said he waited for about an hour and a half. On July 4th, 1991, her body was found. Her cause of death was also strangulation with a fracture to her thyroid cartilage. Her decomposition levels made it very difficult for the autopsy to show any other injuries. Now, the ninth ninth victim in which Bill would be officially convicted of was Kelly Hammond. Kelly was a mother to two daughters and a son. She was also working on University Avenue, where she was last seen by her friend, Kelly Whitecloud. An incident happened with Kelly Whitecloud that arguably could have been Bill. Uh, She was picked up by a van, and she was offered $20 in exchange for her service. But she told the driver that she was also hungry, so she asked him if they could be taken to McDonald's, and the driver said yes. The driver requested that after they ate, they go to the orchards. Now, I'm not really sure what the orchards is. Um, Riverside is a citrus city, so maybe it was a place where fruit grew. I don't know. But according to White Cloud, she said that she preferred to go back to the motel, but the driver refused and wouldn't let her out of the van after she requested to leave when he said that he'd only pay her $10 because he got her McDonald's. I looked up the prices of McDonald's back in the day, dude. It was like, it was like 40 cents for a hamburger. Like, you couldn't pay the girl what she's worth? Please, come on. So she decided to jump out of his moving vehicle where she saw Kelly Hammond half a block away and the van drove down to where she was at and she saw her get into the van and she yelled at her to not get in, but she actually did and that was the last time that she was seen alive. Now, at this point, White Cloud contacted authorities and she gave a description of the man in this van and his vehicle, and then an APB was released to local media and news outlets. On August 16, 1991, her body was found and it was oddly posed in an alleyway in the city of Corona. I think Corona is in the IE, 
Um, it's west of Riverside City. Her body was found face down and her arms and legs were just like splayed out in like weird positions. Her cause of death was strangulation with an acute opiate contribution to her death. After her death, Kelly's father raised her two daughters and the father of her only son was raised by his biological father. The tenth victim that Bill was going to be convicted of was Catherine McDonald. She was a 30-year-old woman and mother to two daughters and two sons. Catherine's sister urged her to move to Riverside from Watts, Los Angeles because she was worried about her constant drug use. Now, if you're not familiar with the area, Watts, LA is not a very safe area. And back in the day, Riverside was a place to raise your kids. So she urged her to move to Riverside and I'm sure it eats at her sister every day because she asked her and urged her to move to Riverside where she would later die. Uh, She also worked on University Avenue, and she was last seen by her daughter on September 12th, 1991, when she left their apartment to go to the store. The following day, her body was found in Lake Elsinore, posed with her legs spread apart, but her feet were touching, and her arms were laid outwards. She was the only victim who was black, and for a long time, authorities really didn't believe that murderers attacked victims outside of their own race, but at this point in time, recent times, it has been debunked. Um, they cross all lines, so. And because of this, back in the day, the initial authorities didn't believe that Catherine was a victim of Bill. The reason they knew for sure, eventually, I guess, that Catherine was one of the many victims was because her right breast was removed, which was obviously a signature of Bill's. Her murder was so brutal that she had almost been decapitated. During Catherine's autopsy, the pathologist found that Catherine was also four months pregnant at the time of her murder. After her death, her youngest son would eventually move to his paternal grandfather's home, the other son would move with his father in Texas, and the girls moved in with their grandmother back in Watts. The second to last known victim was Delia Zamora, also known as Delia Wallace. She was a 35-year-old mother and sister. She was a mother to six children. She had four boys and two girls, ages ranging from 12 to 21. She worked on University Avenue in Riverside City, and on October 30th of 1991, her body was found near an interchange in Riverside City. Her cause of death was strangulation and a crushed larynx, which according to experts indicated an extreme amount of pressure to her throat area. After she died during the trial, her sons would visit her burial site and leave flowers and handwritten notes telling their mother how much they loved her. The last known victim of Bill was Eleanor Casares. She was a mother to three, she worked on University Avenue, and her sister last heard from her on December 23, 1991, in the morning. But she was later found that day at around 1 p.m. in the orange groves where she had died from strangulation and she suffered from a fracture in her thyroid cartilage, as well as bleeding in her hyoid bone. She had broken fingernails and her body had been moved from one spot to another. She was also stabbed in the chest, which according to experts would have been fatal. In addition to her stabbings, one of her breasts was removed post-mortem and was placed about 40 feet away from her body. The night that her children would learn about their mother's horrific death, they were shopping for last-minute Christmas gifts. This was two days before Christmas. 
One of her daughters stated that she had a good relationship with her mother. She was quoted saying, She understood us. We could talk to her, tell her things. And after her mother's death, it is documented that she had wanted to complete suicide. On January 9th, 1992, Riverside Police Officer Frank Orta was working on University Avenue on a police motorcycle. His typical shifts were from 2 p.m. to midnight, where he'd patrol the area. He had been working the area in in that specific area um, for five or six years, and it was common knowledge for this area to be frequented by sex workers and their johns. Now, Officer Orta was aware of the women who had been murdered, A detective, Kears, made a bulletin post in August of 91, giving the department information about, like, possible suspects for at least one of the murders that occurred on university. So, in their department, there was a a poster with a description of the man, um, his van, and all the information that uh, witnesses had provided to the department. He saw a van matching the description of the van that had been previously placed by witnesses where the women were last seen working and where they were last seen alive. After about like 9.30 p.m., a woman had approached that same van and Officer Orta took down her description as well as the vehicle who had been like in contact with that woman. From his previous experience, his opinion was that she was a sex worker and she was looking for a John. The woman made eye contact with the officer, and when they made eye contact, she had walked away from the John, and I would assume that she had said something, or he just, the van pulled away from the liquor store where it had been sitting at, and the officer followed the van eastbound on University Avenue towards Sedgwick, then he made a U-turn. Now, at this point, he was headed westbound, and officer the officer was directly behind the vehicle. Now, at Park Avenue, the van stopped at a red light. And he fricked up. Without signaling, the van made a right turn. Officer Orta turned right as well, then he turned on his siren to pull the van over. Eventually, the van turned left onto 7th Avenue, and at about at 60 feet after he had turned, the van pulled over. Officer Orta tr- um, treated this as a routine traffic stop, and as he approached the vehicle, the man driving had matched the description of the suspect in the bulletin that he had seen months prior to this encounter. Sitting alone in the van, the officer asked for the driver's license and registration. The driver had no registration for his vehicle, but he did have a license with one normal printed address that had been crossed out, and he actually had two addresses written on the back that were like listed that he wrote new address quote new address the crossed out address was in lake elsinore and then one of the addresses on the back was in rialto and then the second was in uh, lake elsinore once he returned to his motorcycle he ran the license and it came back as suspended this man's license plate read b-i-l-s-u-f-1 Two officers that had been part of the task force were also patrolling that night, and they stopped and assisted Officer Orta in his traffic stop. The two officers were Don Tawili and Dwayne Beckman. um, They were from the Riverside Police Department. Officer Orta decided to impound the vehicle after seeing the vehicle registration had expired, and the officers agreed that he did match the witnesses' composite sketches and description. While the paperwork was being completed, Officer Tauli 
had seen the butt of what looked like a brown-handed revolver sticking out from underneath the driver's seat. After seeing the weapon, he alerted the other officers and they handcuffed Bill for the possession of a firearm. Bill told the officers that it wasn't actually a firearm, but just a BB gun, and they actually confirmed that it was just a BB gun. The officers then saw a knife that was wedged between the driver's seat and the seat's runners. And at this point, he was now under arrest for breaking his 10-year Texas parole and being in possession of a knife with a fixed blade. The knife appeared to have blood at, like, the point, you know the point where the metal and the handle, like, meet? There's, like, that L shape? Well, it looked like there was blood in that crevice on the knife. A spray of the same colored blood reached from the driver's side of the car all the way on the roof across the top of the van. The officers at the scene then called Detective Keir. Detective Keir had contacted criminalist Steve Sikovsk, I think that's how you say his last name, Sikovsk, to verify the tire tracks that had been found at the scene of the sites where the bodies were found. Now, these tire marks were matches to the van's front left tire. In addition to a matching tire track, Bill was wearing a pair of Converse tennis shoes. This pair of tennis shoes were the exact match to the shoe prints left behind at the crime scenes. Detective Keir told the officers to freeze the scene where they then arrived 20 minutes later. At the scene, Detective Keir collected evidence, which included a California Highway Patrol baseball hat and then clothesline rope. The clothesline rope had a different fiber from a rope that had been previously taken out of the van by Officer Beckman. Now, Detective Keir took gray carpet fibers from the van floor, fibers from a green blanket, and fibers from the rope that they found. Once the scene had all evidence collected for that time, she had a flatbed tow truck take the van to preserve the tread of the tires, which could be later used as evidence. The evidence was then passed to criminalist Sikovsky. Wait, did I pronounce it wrong the first time? I think it's Sikovsky. Yes. The evidence also included a gold pillow, a sleeping bag, and the actual green blanket itself. Bill was brought to RPD station at about like 11 p.m. At the station on January 10th of 92, um, a Riverside County Sheriff's Department forensic evidence tech took photographs of Bill, and in these photos, he included scratches um, of marks on the right side of his face and the left clavicle area on his upper chest as well as his hands. He also had a cut on his hand above the knuckle um, that was healing at this point, as well as a scar on the back side of his thumb. He also had a cut on his lip that was cut and bruised and healing at this time. At the RPD station, Detective Michael Hearn was assisting forensic technician Michael Latulipe, I think is how you pronounce it, of Biotox Lab where they collected blood, saliva, and hair samples from multiple parts of Bill's body. After being transported during his booking at Riverside County Jail, he came in wearing black converse, metal frame glasses, a brown button-down shirt, a sleeveless blue t-shirt, and that t-shirt had like five to six tears in it um, near the stomach, a pair of brown pants, and a black basket weave belt with a silver and gold-colored metal buckle on it that was initialed with a B. In his statement to the police, he repeatedly denied ever killing these women, but he did admit to being present in the orange groves because his shoe print was left behind. 
Multiple forms of evidence were left behind at almost literally every crime scene, and these key pieces of evidence are what will take Bill down, essentially. Tire tracks specific to the vehicle of Bill's were found at multiple crime scenes, and the criminalist Sikofsky of the Department of Justice analyzed the tire marks left at the scenes, and he determined that the tire brands were consistent with several of them, which were Armstrong Coronet Ultra Track in comparison to 12 impressions, and two were consistent with Yokohama 382 tires on the front passenger side and two Uniroyal tires on the rear of the vehicle. Additionally, fibers were found on the bodies of multiple victims, and they were linked to the fibers found in the van of Bill from the sleeping bag, the gold pillow, the green blanket, and rope. Additionally, there were also cat hairs found on multiple victims, which microscopically were similar to the cat hairs found in the van. And after this, members of the Homicide Task Force executed a search warrant for the home of Bill at his apartment in Colton, or like Rialto. It's like the same, it's like the same area. That same address that was written on his license. They found multiple light bulbs that were the same exact model as the one found relating to Tina's case. The cat hair found on the victims and in his van was consistent with the live cat that was found in the apartment. And in addition to this, clothing or jewelry were given to the people close to Bill that had actually belonged to the victims themselves. Items like a pink and white striped shirt, a purse, gold bracelets, rings, and necklace, clothing like a black sweater and jeans, did I say purses? Purses, a pair of turquoise earrings, and these belongings had to be identified by the victim's family. So he stole these items from these women that he murdered, and then they all had to be identified by the family members. He was arraigned on February 4th of 92, where he was to be charged with the murder of Catherine McDonald and Eleanor Casares. On July 28th of 92, a grand jury indicted Bill on 14 murder counts and one attempted murder count. On July 17th, 95, after deliberating for only 10 minutes, the jury returned verdicts of guilty on 12 murder counts and one count of attempted murder, but unfortunately the jury could not unanimously find him guilty of a 13th murder. On October 26th in 1995, Bill Seff was condemned to death. To this day, he is still sitting in San Quentin State Prison, waiting for his fateful day to arrive. Now, according to NPR, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive moratorium for California's death penalty, which led to the reprieve of 737 people on death row. Bill Suff is one of those 737 people. This moratorium included the immediate closure of the execution chamber at San Quentin. Governor Newsom is quoted in a written statement saying, quote, Our death penalty system has been, by any measure, a failure. It has provided no public safety benefit or value as a deterrent. It has wasted billions of taxpayer dollars. But most of all, the death penalty is absolute, irreversible, and irreparable in the event of a human error. According to the LA Times, under California's death penalty law, capital trials are held in two different phases. In the first, the jury decides guilt. The verdict must be unanimous and beyond a reasonable doubt. So literally every single person on the jury needs to say yes. And then it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt. During the second phase, the jury decides whether to impose the death penalty or to give the guilty party life without possibility of parole. Personally, I, I find the most interesting part about California's death penalty is that 
we have been sentencing people to death at a higher rate than other states like Texas, and we have the largest population on death row in the entire Western Hemisphere, but we're a state who doesn't execute people easily and we don't take it lightly. Um, in states like Texas, they'll, they'll just kill you on the spot. You're guilty, you're dead, you know? Um, but here, we don't take it lightly. We don't execute people easily. After he signed the order, uh, Governor Newsom said that we are considering executing more people than any other state in modern history to line up human beings every day for executions for two plus years, premeditated, state-sponsored executions I cannot sign off on executing hundreds and hundreds of human beings knowing that among them are people who are innocent. Towards the end of the trial, the, uh, the prosecutor in Bill's case is quoted saying, It is a rare occasion in our lives when we come face to face with evilness, and when we are confronted with something in our society that is truly evil, we must kill it. We must destroy it. Mr. Suff is truly evil. The death penalty is for human beings, but I submit to you that Mr. Suff is no longer a member of the human race. By the nature and type of crimes he has committed over the past 22 years, he has no heart, he has no soul, and by God, he has no conscience. So whether you believe in the death penalty or not, these victims, they deserve better than the horrible fate that Bill brought to them. And I really do hope that the surviving members of the victims have found at least some semblance of peace in their lives. Now, I do want to end this episode with a poem that was written by Carol Miller towards the end of 1989. Um, if you remember, Carol Miller is one of Bill's victims. I was moving along, singing my song, had it all, it was mine, just about to align, looking for my friend, his heart I'm going to win. I was happy and carefree until I looked up and who did I see? Oh no, it's you. So I stumble, stumble and fell, went through nine kinds of hell, but Satan, my soul's just not for sale. Because you see, he shined on me, had his tiger by the tail. While you were pushing me to fail, Satan, Satan, we all know you fell, but ha, I got a different story to tell. Even when I was sinning and a grinning, doing whatever I could scrounge, until I just figured out that Jesus is the only true love around. If you or anybody that you know in the Inland Empire is struggling with addiction and would like to get help, Riverside University Healthcare System has substance use services and I have linked the website for those resources in the show notes, as well as the National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's helpline phone number and website. They're all in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this interesting. And if you'd like to find the podcast on social media, the Instagram and TikTok handles are at a nightmare on their street. Twitter is at a n o t s podcast, and our email is a nightmare on their street at gmail.com. Um, if you want to email any information, any um, subject or case recommendations, or if you have that research, like I mentioned earlier, to send me, um, I would love to read it. Um, but yeah, and then our Twitter handle is kind of weird because you can't really have a long podcast name, so I just picked the first letters of the podcast name so a-n-o-t-s a nightmare on their street podcast but yeah um thank you guys so much for listening um i'll see you next time